0: Welcome back goblins you're listening to the esoteric book club i'm your host jason tonight we are talking about the crooked path an introduction to traditional witchcraft and a series of articles i'm going to lump together and call *Mulder was right joining me tonight is the host of the life mancy podcast rachel wilkinson hello so could you tell us a bit about yourself
1: yeah uh, my name is i want to wait for that thunderclap Uh, So my name is Rachel Wilkinson, and I am recording live today with Jason while there's a hurricane going on in Corpus Christi. So occasionally you might hear thunderclaps in the background, but consider that a feature and not a bug. I host Life Mancy, a podcast that is about finding your own inner magic and sort of inspiring you to get a little weird in your life, to kind of break out of ruts, and I also try to Demystify the occult and esoteric subjects for everyday people.
0: Believe it or not, you were actually a very large inspiration for me to begin my own podcast.
1: Well, that's very nice. I'm glad I was able to inspire you to try something new.
0: The way we ended up meeting is kind of odd. I work in an occult shop here in West Virginia, and one of Rachel's friends from Texas moved to my area, and she was shopping for a birthday present for Rachel. And we ended up talking and, and everything in the shop. And then she just eventually says, hey, do you like podcasts? And she turned me on to Life Mancy. And I think it was like episode two at that point. So everything was very new. And I've been following ever since.
1: Yeah, very new. Yes, very new. That was Courtney, who I adore. Courtney was my, my friend and yoga instructor in Houston. But her husband ended up getting a job in West Virginia and they had to move. But it was very sweet of her to find a birthday present for me. And yeah, she even told me, she's like, oh, there's this guy. He's going to play your podcast. I thought it was cool.
0: And after you interviewed me, what was it in June?
1: It was for Father's Day, yeah.
0: So that got a lot of airtime, too, in the shop. And people really seemed to enjoy it. I think I got a lot of people turned on to life, Nancy.
1: Good. I'm glad to hear it.
0: We have decided to read a book together and review it. We have very strong opinions about this book. The book is The Crooked Path by Keldon. Let's go a bit into who Keldon is as an author. He is a contributing author to The Witch's Altar, The New Aradia, A Witch's Handbook of Magical Resistance, and Modern Witch Magazine, along with being a blog poster on patheos.com. Let's start with your impressions, what what did you think about this book ultimately?
1: So if we were going to use a scale between 1 and 10, 1 being the worst book I've ever read and 10 being the best book I ever read, I'm going to give it a 4. It wasn't great. I'm not in love with this book. I think he is definitely speaking from a very particular perspective that I think is not inclusive to a lot of people. I think when he talks about this being traditional witchcraft, he is only talking about a very, very thin slice of witchcraft from a very specific perspective and should not be considered a foundational book of understanding the true history and wholeness of witchcraft.
0: That's pretty fair, I wouldn't rank it as harshly, but I still wouldn't rank it very high. On the same scale of 1 to 10, I would say maybe a 6. Oh, you you,
1: you liked it a little more than I did then.
0: I have issues with parts of it, for sure, and we've talked about this off-air. But ultimately, it it's well-organized, and it is well-written. So that gets him a few more points. It was still dry in places. But he does a lot of work with the history of witchcraft as well, which does help because you don't normally see that in a lot of witchcraft books.
1: Yes, but his history of witchcraft is very specifically UK. It is very specifically the United Kingdom and it very specifically follows the line of the United Kingdom into northeastern puritanical sort of Salem and that that vibe like if you did you ever see the show Salem? Yeah, yeah I did. Okay, that is what he believes traditional witchcraft is. It's sort of like a cross between Salem and Sabrina. I just think that's a a bit of a misnomer because it's sort of like the historical development of witchcraft as it is seen by Anglo-Saxons coming out of the UK and eventually hitting the northeastern American shores.
0: I would say that is a very accurate description of what he's going from. Keldon says, Traditional witchcraft is an umbrella term that covers a vast array of non-Wiccan practices that are inspired by folklore. These practices may be viewed as religious or spiritual, depending on the group or individual practitioner. Traditional witches focus on the use of magic, connecting with the natural landscape, and working with various spirits in both the physical realm and otherworld.
1: Yeah, so where is all of the other witchcraft for root workers and conjure and hoodoo and all of the other traditions, whether it's even Kemetic with Egypt? There is a ton of witchcraft, unless he is saying that you can only be a witch if you have this very European sort of old woman in the woods kind of perspective of what a witch is
0: this is a very good example of a colonialism attitude and a, a point of view that if it's not anglocentric, it's not authentic.
1: Right. Right.
0: He does seem to contradict himself a bit in places.
1: <laughs> you think?
0: <laughs> well, let's go ahead and get this out of the way. This is my biggest concern with this book is his overly reductive nature in who and what witches Worship and follow. He reduces everything to essentially saying, Who do we worship? We worship the devil.
1: Yeah, the devil himself.
0: And that is very problematic. And I think your description earlier about it being a mashup of, you know, the TV show Salem and the chilling adventures of Sabrina, that is a perfect description.
1: Yeah. Yes.
0: So in addition to these issues, what other problematic things did we run into in this book?
1: Well, I also had a problem with the inherent binary nature of all these things. Now, I understand that having the binary aspect of a fertility tradition, which is sort of what he's doing, is kind of inherent in it. But there is so much more that we are learning about Not even just gender, and because he talks about the witch mother and the witch father, but also just in the non binary nature of many, many things. Like it's more about a spectrum rather than an either or. But he has very much everything in it categorized. Like it is either good or it is bad. It is either a witch mother or it is a witch father. It is this or it is that. But he's also sort of categorizing all of these things in very, I think it's really sort of rudimentary ways, or at least in a lot of non-progressive ways. Because even if you're talking about rock spirits or grass spirits or tree spirits or the fae or mythological beings from folklore, they aren't necessarily male or female. They aren't necessarily good or bad. You know, he even goes and talks about how there is not necessarily an ethics system place to witchcraft do you remember that part
0: yeah and it's very odd because he categorizes like you said everything as good or bad but also you shouldn't judge which makes no sense he's judging in the very sentence that he is talking about not being judged he also talks a little bit about how a witch can use a good spell for evil purposes and how an A bad spell can be used for good purposes, depending on how it's applied. But he's still using that binary term of good and evil.
1: Right. Instead of saying that, instead of going by his original point, that witchcraft is not attached to any particular dogma or even moral and ethics system. And then he goes and does it through the whole book.
0: Along those same lines, he does do one thing very good in his description of different types of magic. He lays out very clear definitions for four different magical terms. Curses, hexes, banishments, and bindings. So I thought this was very helpful. He says that a curse is a long-term spell that causes harm. A hex is short-term and temporary. A banishment is to expel or do away with an object or a person. And a binding is a restraint or incapacitation of an individual spirit or entity. He's doing exactly the same thing right there. Curses are meant to harm. Yeah, it's problematic.
1: I saw those definitions, and I actually have a, a very different opinion on the definition of curse versus hex. Banishment and bindings, he and I... I mean, we're, we're agreeing on that point. But for me, a curse, you don't have to be a witch to do a curse. Anything can be a curse. So a curse is speaking or thinking harm to somebody else. Whereas I specifically feel like a hex is witchcraft specific. Like a hex is a witch as a magical practice doing something that is harmful to another person, entity, or situation. A curse, on the other hand, is not necessarily the length. It's not about how long or of a duration. I mean, I think somebody could be under a hex for a very, very long time. But I think the idea of curse is sort of like the broad term for wishing ill on someone. Kind of like if you take mathematics, mathematics is the broad term, but arithmetic is the very specific term. So if you take curse as the broad term, then hex becomes the very specific term that is directly related to a witch.
0: Makes sense. And the way I kind of see the two, because like you said, they are very closely related, I see a curse as being spontaneous. You're inflicting your intent upon another. A hex implies that there is some sort of magical or ritualistic action taken on the part of the practitioner to cause the curse to take place.
1: Yeah, it does make sense. I, I mean, I just did an episode that was my second baseball episode. It was about curses in baseball and how most curses in baseball are actually jinxes. And I think that, again, that is another smaller category of curse. Because if you take a jinx, a jinx is not necessarily a working of magic, but it's something that brings you bad luck. So a jinx is a form of a curse, a hex is a form of a curse. But this idea that it's based on duration, eh, that's flim flam.
0: One other thing he mentions in, not necessarily in the definition of traditional witchcraft, but is heavily implied throughout the book is that only traditional witches work with spirits and entities of the land itself. That statement and opinion really rubs me the wrong way. How so? It entirely diminishes the role of green witches, of druids, of really any land-based pagan religion. Let's take Native Americans, for example. They probably wouldn't like to be lumped in with witchcraft, but they do have magical traditions in their own societies, which are very heavily based on interacting with the spirits of the land. Same with shamanism. It's directly linked to working with spirit entities. And Keldon is saying that only Anglo-centric traditional witches work with spirits of the land which is an entirely false implication.
1: Yeah, it's just not true. That
0: said, his directions on how to do this process is pretty handy, especially if you don't have a background in this. It's a very good introduction on how to work with land spirits.
1: Well, if we want to talk about what I liked about the book, that was pretty much the only section. There was only one other thing that I enjoyed about the book, And that was in the History of Witchcraft, where he talked about it being 1951, before the UK got rid of their law against witchcraft. It was illegal to practice witchcraft until the 1950s, when they finally got rid of it. That was interesting, and I didn't know that at all. But aside from that little tidbit, the only other section that I really enjoyed was Chapter 10, Engaging with the Land or really even part four, the working with the natural landscape, but particularly chapter 10.
0: Okay, let's break this down a little bit. Let's let's back up to the history section, which I thought was really good and really well-researched as well, but it goes back again to being very Anglo-centric and based in the UK. So what you had brought up was the repeal of the Witchcraft Act of 1735. So this was an act that made witchcraft entirely illegal and punishable by death in the UK from 1735 until 1951.
1: I thought that was really a a neat piece of trivia to know, because he was talking about the world of witchcraft would be forever changed by two elements that took place in England during 1951, The first, the Witchcraft Act of 1735, was repealed, effectively decriminalizing witchcraft. And then he goes on to say this 1951 was changed when it was replaced with the Fraudulent Mediums Act, which was basically trying to hoodwink people out of their money using fortune telling. But even that, I think he even says later, even that was repealed, too.
0: It says the Fraudulent Mediums Act was repealed in 2008 which is an incredibly long span of time. Yeah. The Fraudulent Mediums Act I see as a continuation from the Victorian era as well, because that's when spiritual mediumship really came to the forefront. Even people like Harry Houdini made it a hobby of theirs to disprove these mediums. Mm -hmm. So we know it in America because it came up a lot after the Civil War. And with the uh, incredible loss of life that our country suffered, Mediumship became in high demand. We saw something very similar in the UK, apparently, after the two world wars, which is why the Fraudulent Medium Act would come into place. The fact that it lasted until 2008 is even more impressive.
1: Yeah, I thought that was interesting.
0: So he also goes into the background of the founders of modern Wicca. Even though he specifically says that traditional witchcraft is non-Wiccan, he still talks about the history of Wicca.
1: Yes, I noticed that as well. Despite saying this is non-denominational for all intents and purposes, the only history he provides is that of England and then of Wicca.
0: Even though it's, it's contradictory with what he's trying to say, the history is, again, it's well done concisely conveyed, and it does provide a lot of information that I personally did not know going into this.
1: If you are a Wiccan or a Wicca-practicing witch, I think this book is probably up your alley.
0: Yes, I could also see Wiccans being incredibly offended by large portions of it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, which we'll get to, but yeah.
0: That leads me to the next part, and that is how does traditional witchcraft diverge from Wicca? And it's ultimately pretty simplistic. He says, okay, well, we do different rituals. Obviously, it's a different tradition, so your rituals will be different. He said the tools used are different. So they use the stang, which is a forked staff in place of making the athame the traditional tool. He says the coven structure is different because they have a witch lord and a witch lady. They don't have a high priest and high priestess.
1: So you change the term.
0: Basically. And he says that the crooked path is more common to have solitary practitioners. Which to me that is a that's a personal choice more than anything. Yes, there are covens that require group work or at least participation in quarterly and cross-quarterly ceremonies.
1: Right. And I think to have somebody be solitary or as part of a coven, you are taking on sort of the ideologies and mythos of the group. But when you talk about the fact that you're serving the devil, I don't know. Is this because only, only Satanists can work alone?
0: Maybe it just falls more into that stereotype of, you know, Satanists and devil worshippers who can't get along with each other.
1: Maybe. Maybe. I I was going to say, I do think his explanation of the witch's tools was good. It was textbooky. I mean, it's really kind of difficult to mess up talking about a cauldron. But, you know, I thought he did a good job.
0: Especially when he was talking about the differences between tools. And he says, Wiccans use athames. Traditional witches use a knife. It's like, okay, well, you're you're splitting hairs now. Right.
1: Yes, it's because it's, it's, it's semantics. Yes, yes. His entire basis was, we're going to say that traditional witchcraft is different from Wicca based on semantics when, and I am sure that a Wiccan would come by and probably find more nuance, but anyone who is not a Wiccan, who is just sort of practicing or interested in the occult would look at this and say, I see no difference. What What is the difference between your traditional witchcraft and Wicca, aside from the devil?
0: I also have one section here that is starred with several asterisks. The author says that Wiccans don't work with the land or follow the Wheel of the Year celebrations literally. They do it metaphorically.
1: Okay, again, because it's, it's not true.
0: Absolutely not. Especially locally. Many of our groups, even if they are small, consisting of two, maybe three people, or even the solo practitioners, they follow the wheel of the year metaphorically. I don't understand how that would work.
1: I don't either. Keldon speaks to a very specific type of individual who considers themselves a witch. And he brought it up two or three times throughout the book where he was talking about the darkness being alluring to some folks. And I do agree that darkness and taboo and I don't want to say evilness, but a left hand path is attractive to some people. If you are somebody who is more interested in enlivening your own life with magic or doing things to help those that you love, you know, creating a different future for yourself, this is not the book for you.
0: So what you're saying is it is very much the antithesis of Life Mancy.
1: Pretty much, yes, like he and I, if we're gonna if we're gonna talk about spectrums, he and I are probably opposite ends of it.
0: It's interesting that that even comes up the idea of your personal ethics, because that is one section in the book that he goes into in the magic chapter. One of the exercises is reflect on your own ethics. What lines are you willing to cross as a practitioner, and where do you draw that line?
1: Well, that's an interesting question, and I did actually like the questions that he posed in his exercises at the end of each chapter, and in a number of these, he was asking questions like, think about how you would define traditional witchcraft, or in the question that you just posed, what are your personal ethics in terms of witchcraft? And I think that is a good question to ponder, and I think that is a good thing for anyone who is interested in the occult to do, because you need to know where that line is. I don't know if I am thrilled with the implication that he is sort of urging people to figure out how dark are you willing to get, which is sort of the implication of that question. But I think it is good to know what is your line? What is, your, what is the barrier that you won't pass based on your own personal ethics and heart? I mean, the most controversial chapter we have is chapter seven, the witch father and the witch mother. So I think we just jumped to there.
0: I don't have any specific notes for that one, but I do have very strong opinions on it. The witch father and the witch mother. This is the section that I had the strongest opinions on, and probably the strongest negative opinions on. And mostly because it comes down to him saying, who do witches follow and worship? We worship the horned god,
1: the devil. And, and, and reduces all other gods, beings, and spirits to being aspects of the devil.
0: Any entity or deity that has horns or antlers in any way, shape, or form is the devil. Which grossly oversimplifies everything, but it also discounts paganism in general, polytheism, and it reduces it to a Christian mindset, which again is contradictory considering he's trying to do witchcraft.
1: We talked about this offline before, because when I first read this, I thought he was being facetious. I thought he was not being literal and instead saying from the Christian perspective and and despite all of these different nuances in witch father gods or or male gods, that they are going to be surmised by saying the devil. And then when I stopped and I went back and I read after our conversation where you were like, no, 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 he's being literal. I went back and read that, and then I just got even more mad. Like, I was just mad this entire chapter.
0: For sure. And he, if I remember, he even has a section talking about writing your name in the black book. Yes. (laughs) I, I was like you. I thought he was being facetious at first. Does he really conceive of a book manifesting that you write your name in to sell your soul? It kind of seems that way. It also kind of seems like he's talking metaphorically in that you travel into the spirit realm for your sabbat, and then you do it there through astral projection. It's it's very it's unique, I'll put it that way.
1: I do believe that there are initiatory practices that this would apply to, but again, it is a fraction. It is, it is a small slice of initiatory practices, which is why the title of The History of Traditional Witchcraft, Defining Traditional Witchcraft, it's built on a faulty premise from the title.
0: It's saying that this is the singular traditional witchcraft practice. You and I both are coming at this from the idea that traditional witchcraft would be more like folk magic.
1: Yes, but I also want to talk about Luciferianism because he has a whole page about the light bearer. The witch father is connected to Lucifer, whose name literally means light bringing. Being a fallen angel, Lucifer descended to earth and granted humans with a spark of divine illumination. Luciferians don't even believe in a satanic devil as a Christian construct. They do idolize Lucifer not as a deity, but as a role model as far as breaking the chains that bind you and leading your most divine life as you see it. And that's why it kind of gets like it can get dark. But Luciferianism isn't Satanism, but even in this chapter, he equates Lucifer as Satan and the devil, which is still a Christian perspective and a Christian construct. Lucifer was not going to bow to any god, and Luciferianism kind of takes that same tact. It's like, I am not going to bow towards any god. I am going to live towards my fullest potential. But that does not necessarily mean doing evil in the world or worshiping the witch father devil himself.
0: It makes an individual question blind obedience.
1: Do you want to elaborate?
0: So ultimately, Lucifer was pushed out because, like you said, he would not follow his father, God, Yahweh, would not follow the orders just because they were ordered. He, he wanted a reason, ultimately, from my understanding. I could be very wrong. But he, he didn't follow the orders because Dad said so. He wanted to know why, and he was punished for it.
1: I don't know how to resolve this aspect of it. I don't know how to resolve for somebody who might be listening or somebody who might be interested in reading this book. I, I think it has to be a personal decision of whether that belief system works with what you're doing. I don't think you need any part of this belief system to do magic. I think magic can be truly secular. But I think that there is something to be said here for warning people about playing with magic. Because if you are going to try to connect to spirits, and if you are going to try to connect to the witch father or the witch mother, I do think the energy of those entities are real. I don't know what to call them. I don't necessarily know how to define them. But I do believe that spirits and fae and gods do have power, if only in people's belief. Even if you're saying that these things don't necessarily exist in the world, even if you are a total skeptic of gods and goddesses and Fae and all this kind of stuff, belief can manifest as these energies. So I think it is important to at least say, hey, before you start doing XYZ or before you start trying to do magic with the spirits in your community, you really need to be careful. And I think that. Is good, And I even think that the witch father and witch mother chapter is inadvertently positive, if only to sort of give people insight onto how things can go very, very dark.
0: Do you have any closing opinions that you'd like to share?
1: Well, I think my closing opinion is really the most valuable portion of this book is part four, working with the natural landscape, and particularly chapter 10, engaging with the land. If there was any reason to read this book, I think it's for that chapter, because I think he goes into bioregionalism. Bioregionalism is when you sort of draw on the energies of the land that you live on. So for you, it would be West Virginia. For me, it would be Texas. And understanding the seasons. Uh, he was even talking at one point about the the wheel of the year. And the wheel of the year traditionally is summer fall, winter, spring, you know, sort of life-death cycle. But when you have a place like Texas, winter is, it's there, but it is not an experience like one would have in West Virginia or anywhere in England, right? I think I've been down here, oh gosh, I've been down here about seven years now and I had snow once at 2 a.m. that melted the next day out of seven years. And so this idea of leafless trees and snow-covered countryside to represent kind of the death aspect of that cycle doesn't necessarily work for Texas. And so it's important to look at how that wheel of the year has to be reimagined. It's not necessarily the traditional months. It's not necessarily the traditional signs of that seasonal change and how it's important if you're going to be a witch who uses the land or even just magical practitioner who uses the land to understand the flora and fauna of your area, the way that the seasons change in your area, and even the cultural history of the land that you're on.
0: I would add in the history section, even though it's very specific and very UK modern oriented, it is very concise and very informative. It does give you a very good timeline for how modern witchcraft developed, even though he specifically says traditional witchcraft is not Wicca, most of the history section is about Wicca.
1: (laughs) Yes, given this conversation and knowing that we started on a scale of 1 to 10, my opinion has not changed. I am still at a 4. Has your opinion changed?
0: Not much. I'm still hovering right around a 5.5. It's not a 5, but it's not a 6. It's not a great book. It is well-written. It does have good exercises. But it is also very conflicting.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it argues with itself. Yes.
0: But that could be said for many, many books on this subject they're not entirely going to answer any question or solve any one problem universally. It's a single practice. It is a very, in this case, a very unique focused practice that is still coming to terms with its own belief system and structure. But it is showing, I guess the best way I heard it described in the book is that it is a living tradition. And I do think that is a a healthy way for any magic or faith-based spiritual system to approach itself. There's a big call for traditionalism, but ultimately traditionalism is rooted in the past. Yeah. And the circumstances in which a lot of these practices evolve were very rooted in the time period in which they were created. They may not apply to us anymore today. So we need to adapt and we need to grow. And it seems like that is what he is attempting in this book, but also trying to hold on to a lot of the past as well.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that the only tradition of witchcraft that is something that you can hang on to is that witchcraft will always change and witchcraft will always be different. I think witchcraft is inherently progressive. Just like what you said, it's always a product of the land and the time at which the witch, oh, say that five times fast, is living in. And I think to try to categorize every categorize a huge chunk of magical tradition into a particular box is just, I mean, it's a hard challenge to start out with. So if we're going to give him credit for anything, it's taking on an incredibly difficult challenge. I do not think he succeeded in his goal but I do think there are educational aspects to this book. And I think for anyone who is interested in learning witchcraft or learning the occult, the best thing they can do is read as many books as possible, both so that they know what they agree with and also so they know what they disagree with.
0: I want to thank you for joining me today. And where can everybody find you?
1: Well, I really enjoyed our conversation. I did enjoy reading this book, even if I disagree with it, just to sort of be open-minded to other things. You can find me at lifemancy.com. I am on Instagram at lifemancymagic. I'm also on Facebook at lifemancy. So uh, yeah, please give the show a listen and, you know, reach out.
0: Thank you for joining me today. That is Rachel Wilkinson of the Lifemancy podcast. Until next time, stay weird. July 2020 has been a strange month to say the least, and what better way to exemplify that than a series of articles that I am entitling Mulder Was Right. In 1993, the television series The X-Files introduced us to the phrase, the truth is out there. It also introduced many people to the idea that the U.S. government was hiding information about what that truth actually was. Hidden behind explanations of swamp gas and weather balloons, the truth behind unidentified flying objects has been a source of speculation and rumor since World War II. In 1944, the term Foo Fighter was first used in recorded history in reference to sightings made by U.S. pilots who had spotted glowing balls of light. It was determined that these sightings were of electromagnetic discharge, similar to St. Elmo's Fire or ball lightning. At least, that was the official story. What came out later showed that these lights were known to trail aircraft, oftentimes keeping pace with or outstripping the jets. Initially, the U.S. feared that it was an unknown German aircraft, but after the war, it was discovered that German and Japanese pilots were seeing the same lights as well. The term UFO was officially coined in 1951 by the United States Air Force for use with the now infamous Project Blue Book. Initially the term was only applied to objects that remained unidentified after investigation, limiting the use of the phrase. Since then, the term UFO has become synonymous with, really, anything in the sky that Cousin Cletus can't reckon with. For that reason the United States Air Force has turned to the newer, more accurate, Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP. That's right, they created another three-letter acronym. And that brings us to the final weeks of July 2020, the year that no one thought could get stranger, and yet it somehow found a way. Despite the Pentagon telling us to ignore the man behind the curtain, the Navy is starting to do things a bit more in the open. After a Senate hearing committee for finances and intelligence services, it was declared that some of the findings from the Pentagon's Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Task Force must be made public 180 days after they were given funding. Back in 2007, the program that investigated aerial phenomena was moved from the Air Force to the Office for Naval Intelligence. In that time, subcontractors have come forward to reveal that materials they researched occasionally yielded surprising results. Eric W. Davis, an astrophysicist and one of these government contractors, said in reference to some of these materials, We couldn't make it ourselves. Davis has given briefings as recently as March in which he described, Off-world vehicles not made on this Earth. A transcript of the Senate Committee report states, The committee remains concerned that there is no unified, comprehensive process within the federal government for collecting and analyzing intelligence on unidentified aerial phenomena, despite the potential threat. The committee understands that the relevant intelligence may be sensitive. Nevertheless, the committee finds that the information sharing and coordination across the intelligence community has been inconsistent, and this issue has lacked attention from senior leaders. Essentially, no matter what branch of the military is investigating UFOs, they aren't sharing that information with the other branches or the public, and the government is making their funding contingent on the promise of disclosure. At least, disclosure to other defense organizations. Pentagon spokesperson Sue Goff, said the Department of Defense is creating a task force to gain knowledge and insight into the nature and origins of UAPs, as well as their operations, capabilities, performance, and/or signatures. On July 16th, Senator Mark Rubio was recorded saying in an interview, "We have things flying over our military bases and places where we're conducting military exercises, and we don't know what it is." and it isn't ours. He followed up with, Frankly, if it's something outside this planet, that might actually be better than the fact that we've seen some sort of technological leap from the Chinese or the Russians. Senator Rubio isn't saying that it's aliens. He's just saying that best-case scenario is that it's aliens. It's starting to look like Mulder was right. The truth is out there. That concludes this episode. Thanks again to Rachel of the Life Mancy podcast. Check her out on Facebook, Instagram, and at lifemancy.com. Links for the book and all articles are listed in the show notes. Special thanks goes to the band Hello June for the intro and outro music. Find them on Bandcamp. Links in the show notes. I'm your host Jason, and until next time, remember, stay weird.